Hello, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Inflation, energy, and tech continue to dominate headlines. The latest U.S. jobs report came in softer than expected, with many economists seeing March's jobs data as the beginning of a slower growth period. Our guest today is Denise Chisholm, Director of Quantitative Market Strategy who will share her current market thesis, including which sectors she believes are in a pull position. Denise is a firm believer in historic probability analysis, and with host Pamela Ritchie today, she'll unpack the key market indicators that could indicate the overall health and direction of the markets. This podcast was recorded on April 11th, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Let's talk about many moving parts. There's, it actually seems interesting because there are so many different narratives actually at the moment. There, it, there is not a big narrative sort of running each day to day, it seems. No, I think that's a, that's a great way to put it because, you know, it's funny. I was just having a conversation with a portfolio manager about this is that you can sort of make the data say anything you want right now. It depends on which parts of the data that you're looking at and which parts that you think are relevant. I try and step back from all that and really look at what the probabilities associated with the data are. So I kind of try and get rid of all that. But I think some of what has been the struggle for the market is really about seasonal adjustments. And I've actually far, you know, many, many years ago, I sort of did this for a living with cost of living data. And seasonals are much trickier than you might think in terms of calculations, especially when you have things like the pandemic. And, you know, the oil price shock that we saw last year, that's how you use seasonals, which is what is the month on month change in the average January, the average February. And then that's how you adjust the data going forward. So some of the strength that we saw specifically in January, there was a concern that there was a reacceleration in growth, a reacceleration in inflation, but really was some of that just the trickiness behind seasonal adjustments. And we're starting to see in maybe some of the payroll data, in the initial claim data, and even some of the PCE deflator data, that we're seeing those revisions to be revised downward in the sense that maybe there was a little bit too much seasonal adjustment and we're seeing an unwind. So whatever growth and inflation scare that we saw in January might be unwinding and sort of being a different trajectory over the course of the year. That is completely fascinating. So the, the month over month, the seasonal, that's really what the Fed obviously is, I don't know if struggling is the right word, but they're certainly waiting on it, aren't they? They certainly are waiting on it. I think that they're waiting to see a, a clear change in trend. And again, it depends on which, which parts of the data that you look at. You've heard me talk about the wonkiness associated with the shelter component. So the way I look at it, and in some ways the, the predictiveness of the data as it relates to either profits, the overall economy, or the U.S. consumer, is not really about the shelter component. And partly because we know that there's deep historical lags, right? We know what mortgage rates have already done. We know the real live indicators of rental inflation has massively decelerated. And home prices in some places are actually quite negative. 
So we know that that shelter component, which isn't incorrectly calculated so much as it's deeply lagged, will likely decelerate and potentially decelerate rapidly at some point. So when you think about the Federal Reserve's job and you say, okay, well, maybe we put a little bit of a check mark in that area because we know that there's lags to monetary policy and we're seeing some live indicators where that is decelerating. And if you look at everything else, even in the PCE deflator report that we just saw, that is the Fed's preferred method, methodology, what you're starting to see is that, you know, seasonally adjusted rates, annualized rates over the last six months, everything X that shelter component pretty much zero. So even when you start to think about the core services X shelter that Powell has quoted, which is kind of a new twist, the only areas that are elevated still and not nearly as elevated as we saw in the 80s or certainly the 70s and 80s is, you know, three areas that sort of comprise maybe 8% of the overall basket. So you're starting to move the needle towards less and less of this inflationary impulse in terms of the basket. It is amazing because we still see, I think, average everyone still sees inflation everywhere. I mean, you physically see it in your grocery bill and everywhere else. But bring the OPEC cut into what you've just said, because that was that actually was a single narrative that was moving the market last week, obviously. That was one of those days. But bring that into sort of historical leitmotif for us, if you will. Yes, and that's an important one because you've heard me say a lot, if there's one macro indicator, and I'm going to call it a macro indicator, that I want to watch, it's crude oil. Because that was really the definition of the contraction in real average hourly earnings, what we saw last year, which is, you know, crude prices, let's, let's say, going from 70 to 80 to that peak of 120. That was the shock. And that was that led in some ways and was coincident with the inflationary impulse associated with that. So crude oil is very important. Now, what's really interesting when you look at OPEC price cuts, and we just had one within the last two years, for sure. And what we saw, you know, when you look at it in history, you say, okay, when OPEC cuts production, does that stem the decline of the oil price? The answer is ironically, no. <laughs> More often than not, the oil price goes down after an OPEC cut. And the reason is a little bit like we always talk about. You can't hold all else constant. I know that people want to say, well, demand is X, supply just went down. So the intersection of supply and demand makes, you know, essentially price. So we're going to hold all this constant. And we know because of that, so price should go up. And I guess it did, you know, for a week. But what you see over the long term is that more often than not, OPEC is cutting production because of the weakness in demand or the weakness in price already. So look, there might be some sort of like counterfactual where you say, well, OPEC cuts, you know, had they not happened, would have ended up with even lower crude oil prices. That might be true. So maybe we were on the way to $60 oil and we are not going to be on the way to $60 oil. But what I will say is that I don't think that this is likely to lead, at least based on the historical data that we've seen, into another oil price shock, which would lead to another inflationary impulse, which would lead to a contraction in real average hourly earnings and more recession risk from here. Right. Interesting. So it is sort of a, a chasing situation in, in, in many cases, a reaction. Tell us a little bit about the discussion of relative everything. So what from last year, again, you get into sort of the tech discussion we mentioned in the introduction of, of what really just had a no good, horrible year last year, obviously, and is getting a little bit of life this year. Mix that with 
obviously the prices of things that we think are defensive, which are, are quite expensive in a lot of cases. Where, where are you seeing, what's defensive anymore? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because in some ways I talk about relative value a lot, but I think it's clear that you have to use relative value where it's predictive. And that's where sometimes I lose people. And that's why, because technology, I've often said that it is like the starting point on relative valuation, not nearly as severe as it was last year in terms of being in the top quartile of its relative polar PE with the data all the way back to 1962. So now we're in just, you know, the modest third quartile, which is a little bit of a drag. But technology has an interesting cyclicality component, which is if earnings are bad enough, they usually rebound because they've got this nice oscillating trajectory with margins down, with earnings down. And we've seen that finally looking like consumer discretionary started to look last year. Technology is looking like that this year. So when that happens, when earnings growth is so bad, it tends to bounce back. Valuation is not often a factor for technology stocks because you can either A, grow into it, or B, sort of the market is a discounting mechanism. And you rarely, in cyclicals, we can talk about that with energy being the exception, not the rule, you rarely get trough multiples on trough earnings. So technology is actually much better set up than we were a year ago because it's already had poor performance in terms of fundamentals. Defensive sectors like consumer staples and to a lesser extent healthcare, and I'm really going to pick on utilities, don't have that at all. Earnings growth hasn't been particularly bad and the stocks are expensive. And by expensive, I mean, so even just after you know what we saw in terms of uh, the banking crisis or the concern around the banking crisis was that week. Essentially, right after that, defense, which I'm going to aggregate the, the three together, which is consumer staples, utilities, and healthcare, went back up to the 94th percentile of relative valuation versus any other sector. And from that position, what you have is a very, very huge risk reward. Yes, the data could get worse. And yes, you could seek out a little more relative valuation expansion and maybe you'll couple it with some relative earnings growth because, you know, what you'll get is, you know, a, a bigger recession or a bigger contraction in profits that I, I don't think will be the case, but that's certainly possible, right? So what you see is you maybe can eke out more relative performance, but the risk reward is massively skewed to the downside. This is very different than what we saw going into the financial crisis and what we saw going into the pandemic what we saw going into the recession in 1990. It's like the most forecasted recession <laughs> we have ever been involved with from an investment point of view. So you're already there in terms of defense. And I think that that skews your risk reward. But technology, look, it has those echoes of defense in terms of that was what worked during the pandemic. So I'm sure that there's some sort of knee-jerky reaction as associated with it. Like, okay, if we go into another recession and interest rates are coming down, Technology is actually leadership, but it's deeper than that right now because you've already seen margins contract. You've already seen earnings growth contract, and that in and of itself puts the, the technology sector as a better risk reward. So the tricky bit or one of the many tricky bits that I'd love for you to answer is it does appear that whether it's a well-telegraphed recession and therefore we don't have recession or whether it's because we just don't need to go into recession. People are okay. They're going to make it through. If they're okay and they're going to make it through, or if it's just so well telegraphed, we've sort of figured it out ourselves so that we don't go into recession, isn't that just all inflationary? I mean, isn't that sort of the question? And what does it do for those sectors that you're currently bullish on? No, I think that in some ways we're seeing it when the non-farm payroll report, the Phillips curve is vertical. 
at this point. So is it inflationary? Is growth inflationary? Well, I don't know. The unemployment rate went down and average hourly earnings decelerated. So I, I think that you need to start to question what is inflationary. And again, there's this sort of knee-jerk reaction that any growth, you know, China's going to you know, open, right? PMIs are going to recover. That's going to be inflationary. Well, we've sort of seen it. It really hasn't been. So, and when you look at the historical data, you can definitely see that what's been more predictive for an inflationary impulse has been the starting point on inflation, not the recovery in PMIs, not the recovery in real GDP growth, not the recovery in real average hourly earnings. Those things really aren't related historically as much as we want them to be because it simplifies the narrative. There's actually, it's quite complex. What leads to more inflation is your starting point on low inflation. That's usually the case. So when your starting point on inflation is top quartile levels, and we're just a tad out of that, depending on sort of how you want to do it on a year-on-year basis, the, usual, the downtrend persists typically despite that sort of recovery. And what is really interesting is that I actually read this in a sell-side note somewhere, and I can't remember who said it, otherwise I would quote them. But they said, this is the first time we've actually seen disinflation. Remember, over the last six months, that annualized run rate of the PCE deflator, X shelter is around zero, right? The hmm. peak of that was around seven, right? So we have seen, these are the comps we're headed into, by the way, we have seen a sharp deceleration. You know, whether or not it will continue, that is unknown. But we already have seen it. This is the first time we've seen that type of de- defla- dis- disinflation without a recession. Interesting. This is very different this time. This cycle was not at all. I mean, those cycles are typical, but this cycle is definitely not typical. So when people start to say things like, well, you know, the recession will happen over the course of the year and stocks bottom about halfway through the recession and earnings contract by about 10 15 and I'm looking for a multiple of 15 times because on average, this is not average. Don't apply average scenarios when there is such a gaping, you know, hole between sort of where the stock market can bottom, what it discounts, what the right multiple is worth. All of that is very, very different cycle to cycle. And this cycle is like off cycle. Well, that is fascinating. So how how are how is the comp story? I mean, as you say, we're going to march into a very interesting comps. If you even just go over, I don't know what what's the right period to look at. But I mean, if you think about what we went through in the pandemic over the last couple of years, I mean, it's a pretty crazy comp story, really. It is, and we're thinking about this like, oh, the inflation's been sticky, and from a year-on-year perspective, it was sticky in the seventies and sticky in the. Year really the rate of change that matters. But to give the comps some perspective, I said to uh, somebody internally the other day, like gasoline is the exact price right now that it was exactly a year ago. And then right after that, a year ago, it went up by about 60%. That's the year on year. I mean, that's just energy. So that's one piece of CPI. But I think that that's the heart of what we went through on a year on year basis. So I think that there's a lot more headwinds to that from a year-on-year perspective, then, then investors maybe appreciate, which is not to say we'll get to 2% immediately and all will be fine and then we will stay there. But it is to say that I think that there is less of an underlying inflationary impulse that sort of puts the Fed in this. I, I think that people think that the Federal Reserve is now sort of in a box where yeah. because of inflation, because inflation has remained sticky, they cannot cut. 
And so even if we got ourselves into a recession, monetary policy is tied, fiscal policy is tied. I'll agree with you on fiscal, but I'm not so sure about the monetary policy because I do think that shelter will likely come down at some point. We will have a massively decelerating trend with a 40% basket in the CPI overall. And what you're seeing is that 8% of that core services X shelter, that's really recreation, that's transportation, that's hotels and, and accommodations. What you'll see in a recession is that's not likely to stay inflation. So if we get into a situation, I, this does not look structural to me when I look through the basket, which means that the Fed has a little more firepower, especially the fact that it hiked all the way to almost 5%. Right. Um, so, you know, you're sort of in a different situation. I mean, this is the exact opposite situation than when we're coming out of the financial crisis. Yeah, this is the exact opposite. So what do we need to know probably at this point about the inflation story for a 60-40 portfolio? What, what does everyone need to sort of be thinking about on this front? Bonds have been quite en vogue lately. Yes. I mean, in some ways, like, let's step back and say, you know, why do you want a 60 portfolio? 77% of the years, since we actually have data going back to 1927, if you look at the, the long bond for you know, the 60-40, the 40 part of it for, for bonds, the government long bond. So why do you own it? Because in 77% of those years, stocks and bonds move the opposite way. Right? So when they move the opposite way from that perspective, what you have is not necessarily you know, a better total return, blending them together, but a much better risk-adjusted return. The funny thing about it is obviously the math behind it is when you combine two things that have lower risk adjusted returns, if they're negatively correlated, you have a higher risk adjusted return, right? So that's like fancy stats way of saying, look, it's a smoother ride. That's what everybody wants. I want sort of that, let's call it, you know, eight to 10% total return a year combining these portfolios in a much smoother ride. So I don't have to worry about this crazy back and forth. That's why you own the 60-40 portfolio. That 77% obviously was not last year, 2022. It was the worst year in the history of the 60-40 portfolio as measured this way, going back to, I think, the 30s. So I think maybe it was almost as bad once in the 70s, but really you have to go back to the 30s to really get a downtrend like we saw over the last year. So the question is, okay, should you think about this now in a different framework? And we've talked a lot about how I think that there are setting, there are seeds in place or there, you know, sort of things in place to suggest that the, the critical drivers behind the 60-40 portfolio is much better today, starting 2023, than it was in 2022. So we're seeing that play out. I mean, year to date, what we've seen is I think stocks are <laughs> still up <laughs> through a banking crisis, essentially. Some people call that levitating. I think that it, it shows the positive risk reward that, you know, that equities have already discounted. But bonds up as well, not quite as up, up as much as treasuries in terms of, you know, which ones you're looking at. But you've seen 60 portfolio, let's call it, you know, on an annualized basis, quite good this year. But I think, you know, up seven-ish percent from a total return perspective year to date. So the question is, well, is this likely to continue or is this a dead right. bounce? So if you go back to what are the critical drivers behind the 60-40 portfolio, I mean, it's interesting. There are two, and you know them. I mean, there are probably many more, but there are two that I've studied. One is inflation, and one is the starting point on equity valuations. And inflation, if you knew, and this is what we were saying in 2022, that inflation was going to accelerate into the top quartile, 60-40 portfolio struggles, it produces below average returns. Not nearly as bad as we saw last year, but generally it does detract from your odds. Once inflation is at the starting point of the top quartile and it's decelerating, which by all measures it is, 
mine, the feds, everybody's core, core services, X, blah, blah, blah. All of them are decelerating, maybe not as much as we like, but decelerating. That usually produces above average. So that's definitely a flip-flop from 2022 to 2023, which you would say, okay, hang tight then. And the starting point on the equity valuation. So when you look back to the 20s, you might be surprised to know that the median multiple for the equity market is 20 times. It's 20. That's the median. Okay. Wow. Pretty much the same. I mean, it's kind of crazy because I think that there's always this, you know, knee-jerk reaction like, I want to buy like 15 times. And I get it. We sort of got down to 10 times in the financial crisis. So that seems like really good, right? And we were certainly at like seven times in the 80s during the inflation scare, but rates were a lot higher. But so there are points in history where you've been cheaper, but on a medium basis, it's about 20 times. So we're only at 18. We were actually at 15 in October on the equity multiple. So what you see is when your starting point is now below 20, you do have a positive risk reward. So that's sort of a long-winded math way of saying that I think the 60-40 portfolio that has rebounded some year to date still has likely legs to continue to provide returns for investors. Fascinating. Is there something in there that is, is comparable to sort of the direction of the dollar? Lots of discussion on where the dollar sort of has come to, and but ultimately where it goes from here. I guess if the soft landing is okay, then, then maybe the dollar has a stab at stabilizing, but tell us some nuance within there on the U.S. dollar. I think the nuance is what, what is good for the market and what is good for investors is not a shock either way. So what we saw was a massive appreciation in the dollar, partly because the Federal Reserve was raising rates you know, faster than everybody else. And we had the inflation problem, so that was likely to continue and market straight line that. And after there was some downshift in trajectory, what we've seen is a big reversion in the dollar. I think the question is what happens from here and I think what is about to happen or what is likely to happen is a much more controlled scenario of probably not aggressive appreciation because the Fed is maybe you know closer to the end of its hikes than the beginning of them, or we hope. And then also the growth necessarily isn't really maybe as bad as investors either fear or expect from a recessionary perspective. So if that's the case, then maybe the accelerated uptrend in appreciation isn't particularly marked. And the downtrend or depreciation or that potential, you know, recessionary crisis isn't particularly market either. And what we're more in is a trading range for currencies, which would actually provide some stability for the market. That is a little bit of a Goldilocks scenario, but I actually do think that that's fairly likely given what we're seeing in the data. That's fascinating. And and is that, again, just a picture of a certain amount, and there's still some in there, of stimulus being removed. I mean, it is currently being removed. If it hasn't fully been removed, it's on the road to being removed. Financial conditions appear to be tightening, but doing the trick that ultimately the higher interest rates are, are meant to convey. Right. Everything is slowing. I mean, I definitely don't want to shy away from that aspect of it. And, you know, in some ways, we talked about, you know, is this a hard landing? Is this a soft landing? Is this a snow landing? Look, real GDP growth on a year-on-year basis for the past year is below 1%. That is a hard landing. I think what we're debating is whether or not stocks can discount a contraction in advance. And I will tell you, it hasn't happened. It didn't happen in the pandemic. It didn't happen in the financial crisis, but it happens in half the recessions in history. So that's sort of the debate. Look, the growth is slowing. I think what's different and going back to the this is off cycle, this entire cycle is off cycle, is this would be, if we have a recession, the only recession where real income is accelerating. 
That's a weird one, hmm, right? That is weird. Most of the time, it's coincident with a contraction, but we had the contraction last year, and we didn't have the recession officially. So we could have an acceleration this year. I don't know if we have an official recession because something happens with the unemployment rate or whatever, and BER finally says, okay, yes, this is, this is enough, but we might have an acceleration in real income growth. And we're seeing this. So average hourly earnings is, in fact, coming down. And I just had a portfolio manager ask me, well, isn't that a problem for consumer discretionary? And the answer is no. Because it's not about nominal, it is about real. If inflation continues to, and it has, and I think that the leading indicators suggest that it will, if inflation comes down quicker than real average hourly earnings, the consumer gets more real income, right? And so that it gets less bad. It's not like real inflation yet, for sure, but it gets less bad. Again, this would be the first recession where that has the potential to happen. So I think that that cushions the blow. That's really interesting because you would think the nominal story for earnings is, well, I mean, the earnings are the nominal. I mean, that that is, so I was just kind of, I wanted you to clarify that for me. It, it, it would, you would assume that whatever you're booking as your earnings, it, it sort of incorporates the fact that they're nominal. Yes. And that is the difference between this cycle and certainly the financial crisis is that your nominal starting point is markedly higher. Right. And it's important that inflation has decelerated, at least the way I measure it, in terms of its predictive power on margins. One of the reasons why that you have a lesser earnings contraction during times of high inflation, we saw this in the 70s and 80s, is because inflation is more often likely to decelerate once that starting point is elevated. And that actually provides a tailwind to profits. We see this with crude oil. We see this with inflation at shelter consistently throughout history. And I think that this is, again, one of the misplaced, I would say, average bets. Look, I don't know what's going to happen. But when I look at what is likely to happen, it's a less likely scenario that we will see something like a very, very steep earnings contraction because of these tailwinds that have kicked in that we have not seen in the better part of 20, 25 years. That is so fascinating. We're in, yeah, a different, uh, the opposite type of cycle for that. So let's go back to ultimately what you're seeing for for sort of top three sectors, bottom three sectors, but just to kind of bring it back to the energy story as well. Top three, bottom three. So consumer discretionary still, right? And I would say, I'm going to add to it now, technology. And then right after that would be material slash industrials, top three. And in the bottom three, I'm going to keep real estate, I'm going to keep consumer staples, and I'm going to add energy in the bottom three. So Yes. And the reason is an ironic one. I I think that it's not because the fundamentals are poor, and it's not really about the supply and demand for oil. It's actually that the fundamentals are too strong. This is the only sector that looks like this. So this is margins going back to 1962 shows you that they are around peak, the highest that we've seen in, I think, at least 20 years, and certainly in the top decile of their history. So you say, okay, this is the only sector that really looks like that. Most sectors have seen margin compression. This is why, historically, energy is defensive coming into recessions. It's kind of what caused the recession, right? right? So it has the improved fundamentals. And what happens is that not every sector flip-flops, but oftentimes what you see is sectors flip-flop. And you can see this historically in the data with energy. When your starting point on margins or on earnings overall is at that high level, what are your odds that earnings are going to be even better the next year? Lower than 50-50. 
What are the odds that earnings are going to be better next year if either the oil price has already come down, which it has, or OECD leading indicators are already declining, which they are, around 25? You can bet on earnings being strong, and I will tell you that the likelihood of that is about a quarter of the time in history. You can certainly make the argument that it's different this time. But if you say that it's different this time because of valuation, I'll also tell you that valuation has not provided the sector the ability to look through earnings. We just don't see it historically. Again, you can say it's going to be different this time for a variety of reasons. Generally speaking, I bet with the, the, most of the historical data on record. So what we see is that it's very clear that energy is a standout sector in terms of fundamentals, but it's not always the time you want to own. So I think that the risk reward is negative, not necessarily because of OPEC, not necessarily because demand is going to be soft, but because the starting point on fundamentals is so off cycle, this cycle from sectors that have already seen the earnings contraction, like consumer discretionary, like technology, and like materials that are obviously more better risk rewards in my work. That is absolutely fascinating. Okay, so interesting to get your thoughts, Denise Chisholm, on all of these different pieces going into not only the oil story, but obviously the story across the sectors. Thank you very, very much for joining us. We'll see you again very soon. All the best. Always great to be here, Pamela. Thank you for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.